A sermon starts with a blank page on the screen, on the desk, in the preacher's mind. So does a doctrine. Sermons and teachings of the church don't descend from heaven on golden cords, fully written and ready to be proclaimed. And when it comes to what they might believe about God, the very first Christians know what they have learned about Israel's God. And they figure out from observation or from reliable witnesses that Jesus has a special relationship with Israel's God. That God's glory actually breaks out and shines through Jesus at times, just like the glory of God is supposed to come to the temple once a year to signify God's presence. And the way Jesus talks about God, he calls God his Father. He says some very complicated, convoluted things about how he and the Father are one. And it seems to his first disciples to mean that Jesus knows God better than anybody else. In fact, it seems that Jesus has inside knowledge of God. So it takes a while before there's anything like a consensus about Jesus' relationship to divinity. But they conclude that the God they thought they knew has got to move over and make room for Jesus on that throne. And then there's the Holy Spirit. So one time Jesus says to his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will send the Spirit. And then after the resurrection, Jesus comes into the room with his disciples and just goes, ah, receive the Holy Spirit. So it's his to give. It's in him. It's in him to give. And then before Jesus leaves them, he says, wait until you're clothed with power from on high. And so they wait, and on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit descends upon them like a storm, a God storm, like what Moses experienced on Mount Sinai when he went up to meet God. So the God they thought they knew has to move over again, so does the Jesus they're just starting to understand and make room on the throne for the Holy Spirit. And then somebody takes a blank scroll of papyrus and writes the word Trinity on it. And all these years later, theologians are still unrolling that scroll and writing more on it. Because there are new discoveries, there are new imaginings. One part of the church learns from another how to speak of the Trinity. But it all must be done with care. The Trinity is one of those things that's almost impossible for preachers to talk about without committing heresy of some kind, because language isn't enough for it. So in the past week, there was a meme making its rounds on social media to give advice to preachers on how not to commit heresy preaching on the Trinity. And the advice was say nothing and show pictures of kittens. So for those of you who don't want to hear yet another sermon on the Trinity, here's a kitten. Okay. But for those of you who are still with me and aren't meditating on Miss Kitty, don't worry. I won't try to explain the Trinity to you, and I won't try to argue with those of you who have admitted you have trouble with the doctrine. 
The idea of a God who is one and three and three and one has been abused or used to abuse people. That's why so many people have difficulty with it today. Because after all, the Father is a Father, the Son is a Son. We don't know what about the Holy Spirit, but we say the men have the majority, the males have the majority, so God is male, or mostly male. So that's the only way to think about God. Now maybe you've never heard that in as many words, but we've all heard it behind and through many sermons we've listened to and most of what we learned in Sunday school. A male or mostly male God, it is said, by many still today, a male God means men are superior because they express more of the image of God than women. This is usually said by people who will only ever call God Father, except when they say Lord. And especially since what Westerners call the Enlightenment, and the Reformation was an early part of that, since then, we have approached ancient doctrines with axes and saws. And if we admit there's such a thing as a mystery, we see it as a problem that we will surely solve one day, or we call it primitive and ignore it. And that's what many people say today. But it's not a problem to be solved. It's certainly not something we can reason all the way through. Our brothers and sisters in the Orthodox churches don't talk about doctrines. They think and speak of symbols, of mysteries, the symbol of the Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity. A symbol that represents and expresses to us at least a little of something that's much bigger than itself. A mystery that invites our curiosity, our healthy skepticism, and more than anything else, our imagination. I have, over the years, called it baptized imagination. Some people call it faithful imagination. Mary Fontaine called it sanctified imagination in a wonderful sermon she preached at General Assembly. And Mary is one of the few indigenous ministers we have in the Presbyterian Church in Canada. She knows about sanctified imagination because in her native culture, symbols play an important role communicating deep truth. And they make a lot of room for mystery. And of course, God is the greatest mystery of all. And we can come to know some things about God by reading the Bible and by reading what our ancestors in faith have passed on to us in the church's tradition and theology. We can even pick up a book about the Trinity that's as new as yesterday and read it. And to get to be a preacher, I had to read a lot of books. And I had to write papers that were supposed to convince experts that I knew a lot and understood all of it. And I've been talking about God as if I knew enough about God to speak with authority since I was 16 years old. But all I have studied and written and preached in all those years amounts to barely this much. So for me, anyway, the only appropriate response to the symbol, the mystery of the Trinity, is awe, awesome wonder. How can God be three in one and one in three? Doesn't make any sense. Theologian William Plaker said it is possible to look into the mystery of the Trinity and conclude that Christians are just really bad at math. One plus one plus one is one and three. Wow. 
We can know God as the power that creates and sustains, the giver of life. We can know and experience God as spirit, present and moving, at work within us. We can know God as pattern for living and proof of love in human flesh, in Jesus. Wow. So can we make room for mystery in the 21st century? Maybe we're inclined to see mystery as a negative thing. There's an old phrase, it's from the King James of, of Paul's letters, that describes so much of what we see around us, so much that makes us shake our heads, so much that makes us not want to pick up the newspaper in the morning or watch the evening news on television. Those things that we can only call evil. And we want to know where they come from. We want to know what, what, what's going on. The phrase is the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of iniquity, sin and evil in the world. And sometimes we stand in awe of it and feel helpless. But what about, what about our sense of the unfathomable depths of God's love? What about the wonder of God's grace? The mystery of the good? All of those things that are and we depend on, but none of which makes any sense. Trinity Sunday offers us time for awesome wonder. God is greater than anything we now understand, greater than any other mystery that perplexes us or frightens us. And yet God reveals enough of God's self so we can know and experience God's activity in the world through three distinct symbols and each of which mysteriously expresses the fullness of God. Now, I find these words helpful. He said them when he preached about the presence of the Lord's Supper, but it applies to the Trinity, too. John Calvin said, I do not claim to understand it. Rather, I experience it. That is enough. Glory to God.